magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. Welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I am your host, Warwick Schiller, and recently I had someone send me an email from Australia and said, hey, I think you really should get this guy on your podcast. He's a... He's a... Um, a veteran who served in Afghanistan and he's actually using um, racehorses after their racing careers and he's using them to help uh, veterans with their mental health and PTSD. And she sent a link to a, a podcast he did with ABC Radio in Australia and I had to listen to it. And I'm like, this guy is cool. I love his vibe and I love his story. And I thought, I got to get him on the podcast. And I I contacted him and I said, you know, (laughs) you probably don't know who I am, but my name's this and I do this. And he he, um, emailed me back. I'm like, hey, I'm a huge fan. So anyway, his name is Isaac Adams and he is a uh, a veteran of the Australian Army, served in Afghanistan. And like I said, now helps uh, other veterans. And he he had some quite a bit of uh, PTSD and, and depression issues after he was out of the Army, after he came back from Afghanistan. And he now uh, uses his spare time to help other veterans work through that with horses. So um, I just had the conversation with him, and uh, this this guy's fascinating. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Isaac Adams, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thank you. You know, I... Um, I mentioned in the, in the intro, but I, I listened to a podcast. I actually had someone email me about you and said, this guy would be really good for your podcast. And then they sent me a, uh, a link to a podcast that the ABC Radio did in Australia. And so from that, I learned that you are a veteran and you help other veterans with PTSD through working with horses. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. That's, um, that's correct. So I, uh, I served in the Army for five and a half years. Um, served overseas in Afghanistan and um, had my own experiences when I came back and that sort of led me on a path and um, of where I am today with working with um, with guys that are experiencing very similarly the uh, the same things I went through when I separated. Let's can we go back to um, so when did you get in the army? I uh, joined in two thousand and eight. Um, I was. Uh, I think I yeah I just turned eighteen, um, and yeah was very excited for a career in the military. You you've kind of from a military family, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So in the podcast, I I'd said fifth generation, but I think it's actually fourth. Um, and I've gone back and double checked. I thought it was fifth, but it was actually fourth. But um, yeah. So I've got a very proud history of service in my family I was very passionate to serve I, I still love service and I, I think that's another aspect of myself that motivates um, my work with the veterans because um, I volunteer um, that service I, I, um, I do it through the RSL sub-branch at Ipswich um, and I think okay. it's so for yeah. overseas listeners RSL have returned service league yeah so yeah, uh, and so when you got in the army, what did you what did you 
what did you do? Like, um, yeah, so I joined as a operator radar. So basically, we um, we're used to pick up um, artillery pieces or bullets. We can pick up small bullets, anything from a small bullet to an artillery piece, rockets, mortars, all those sorts of things that are front fired or travel through the air on on radar yeah on radar yeah and then there was a side aspect to that so we did radar operation but we also did surveillance operations so uh, we had smaller radars ground surveillance equipment um, like ground sensors um, observation equipment um, and then that's what led into the UAVs and so the UAV that's drones isn't it yeah so it's an unmanned aerial vehicle Unmanned aerial vehicle. Yeah. And so how long were you in the army before you went to Afghanistan? Um, three years. I've done three years. And you now. went to Afghanistan to, to operate the, the drones, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, yeah. Surveillance drones. Surveillance, yeah. So three years in the army. So you're all in Australia the whole time? No. Up until that point? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I did, I did a little operation um, in the Torres Strait. Uh, which was a um, border border protection, and so oh, I was. This is actually this is a cool story. Tell us about this. Yeah, this yeah. One, didn't you have to live in the jungle for a week or something? Yeah, we lived uh, for uh, six weeks. Um, so we um, were dropped on an island um, uh, called Sabai in the Torres Strait, and I could see the coastline of Papua New Guinea, Indonesia. So um, yeah, we were dealing with pirates. Um, people smuggling, drug smuggling, um, illegal fishing. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty cool. We had um, we had a guy come on our island who we believed was trying to see if we were there. So we had to live covertly for the six weeks and um, had some close calls with this guy. He was armed um, and I had to go forward and be early warning if he got too close. Um, and it's funny, listen, like, thinking back of it because I was 19. Um, and I've got a, you know, a loaded weapon, which uh, when you're a soldier, that's a norm. But, uh, as a 32 year old man, I'm like, what were you going to do with that thing, mate? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just this funny, funny, uh, I think it's a frontal lobe development, um, that you go, oh, wow, that you're a 19 year old, uh, standing opposite someone who is a very different person to you, um, who was armed and. Yeah, so it was a very cool, very cool experience. I really loved that um, deployment because, and it's still ongoing, there's still units that participate in that, um, because it's really defending Australia. Um, and so, yeah, really meaningful operation, yeah. And this this dude that was stalking you, what was he? Was he a people smuggler, drug smuggler? What was he? I'm, I'm, my know? understanding, he was a pirate. So he was uh, there's pirates okay. off Papua New Guinea, around Papua New Guinea. That's my understanding. Um, the two I had two indigenous soldiers that were with me, and uh, one lived in the Torres Strait, and he knew who they were. He named them at the time. I can't remember now, but he was very, very, very concerned, and he said that these people are bad people. Like he was really quite concerned uh-huh. about it. So it was, um, yeah, it was very interesting. Very interesting. Sounds like it. So then. Uh, you were in for three years. When you, excuse me, when you went to Afghanistan, how was how was it getting the news that you're going to Afghanistan? Were you excited about that, or was that concerning to you? Um, no, I was very excited. Um, at the time, I likened it to training training for a sport and then getting the run on side. You know what I mean? I was 
yep. really pumped to go. I really wanted to serve um, on operations. Um, and, you know, I feel, I felt and I still feel very strongly about uh, service overseas protecting Australia and its, its interests um, and our allies, you know. Um, and I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. So when you were Afga- in Afghanistan, where were, where were you based? Um, most of my time was in uh, Tarankau. Uh, I spent some time in another base um, that was a little bit closer to Helmand, like on the border of Helmand province. It was right over the um, – on the border of the area of operation that we were in. Um, and But large majority of our time was operating out of TK. Um, supporting you and you were and you were just you were flying the drones is that what you're doing yeah yeah so that that was my role um just to offer aerial surveillance and overwatch and we would we would do lots of different um lots of different tasks but basically you're an eye in the sky so to speak right and what you know like this overwatch and aerial surveillance what a lot of times, what were you? Who were you watching? What were you watching for? Yeah, so um, we would, uh, when patrols would uh, go out, we would uh, provide a observation of anyone that might be posturing in the area. So you would see, um, interestingly, in Afghanistan, a lot of the koalas that they live in, they don't have roofs, so you can see straight through the top of them. And they actually, because it's so hot, they'll sleep outside or they'll sleep on top of a roof. Anyway, so we could see guys that would be grabbing weapons out of caches and they would run to posture. We would see guys that would be putting on vests, um, like suicide bombers and things like that. Um, We would also see guys in placing IEDs. So they might see a patrol coming. They'll run down and put a battery pack on it um, and then try and detonate it. We would also be looking for what they referred to as spotters, so guys that were watching patrols and learning about their movements, trying to understand their, um, yeah, just the way that they operate. Um, we would also do um, a lot of just watching patterns of life, suspicious activity, getting an understanding of the norms that uh, would within villages and things like that because if you would start to see, for instance, um, people ushering away women and children uh, and then you would only see men, then there's a good op- there's a good chance that something's going to happen, and if we have a patrol moving through, I can radio forward to them and say, "Hey guys, we've we've observed this." Um, the other one that I I enjoyed was um, responding to, well, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, um, but I found it very meaningful. Was responding to um, troops in contact. So when guys would be getting um, contacted or, or shot at. Essentially, um, we would get the call to provide eyes on. So we would fly over to the location and start to identify the enemy um, and give them uh, indications of where we believe it's coming from because a lot of the time these guys would shoot and then go down rat lines and they'd run away or they'd go and run from different locations. So, um, yeah, trying to, just trying to support what's the a, guys. What's a rat line? A rat, line, a rat is, line is what we refer to. They have like aquifers where they would redirect water um, for their cropping and that offered them cover. So they would shoot from one location, run down, and then run along these um, aquifers and then pop up somewhere else or just get away. So 
to the guys on the ground when they're looking across the field, they can't always see where they're running, but we can see it um, from obviously above. Right. So it's almost, they're almost like trenches. Yeah. 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 And how, so how was that um, for you personally, like observing, observing uh, like Australian troops in combat? You know, how, how did that affect you? Um, interesting question. It affected me differently depending on the event. Um, I, um, it was, it was tough seeing guys going through that and, and I would feel guilty that I wasn't there. That happened a few times where, um, you would get that sort of like, and I spoke about this in the, in the other podcast with the ABC, like that, you know, have I done it hard enough? You know, I wasn't boots on the ground. So mm, did I experience that or did I just observe that? And and am I allowed to feel this way about that? There was a little bit of that, you know. Um, I had occasions where um, in one of the bases, you know, you would be having breakfast with the American soldiers and then they would um, be injured. You know, they, they'd get hurt. Um, we had guys that would die. Um, and that was tough. That was really tough because you kind of, in my role, you're kind of a part of the team, but you don't work as closely with these blokes. You don't know them like they know their best mate. You know what I mean? And so you mourn and you're sad to see them uh, for their death, but, in, you know, you don't know them know them. You know them because of the deployment. So I, that was something I felt personally. I was like, you know, I, I had Australian soldiers that I got to know while I was on the base that were that passed away um, or were killed in Afghanistan. Um, and because I only knew them whilst I was in the base, again, I went through that bit of, you know, this challenges me because um, you're a mate, but I don't know you like, like the guys in your unit. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So it was interesting, interesting um, experience. And um, I had to explore and feel out a lot of things that I hadn't really been exposed to before. Did you, like with the other operators you were with that, that were men in the drones, yep. you know, because I, I think you said on the ABC, like you work in shifts and you'll yep. be on for a few hours and off for a few. And did you have conversations about that sort of thing at the time with them or did you guys tend to keep that sort nah. of stuff to yourself? No, nah, we didn't. We didn't really talk about that stuff at all, actually. Um, I think a bit, uh, a bit of a contributor to that was how young um, I was. Um, I, um, I didn't have those tools. I, I was, I was a pretty emotionally intelligent guy because of my upbringing. My parents gave me a lot of really good tools, but even still, I didn't really know how to express that. And um, I personally felt the pressures of just getting on with the job. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't think, I don't think I did. I, I definitely would do things differently now. That's for sure. I'm just, I'm just wondering if if that would make the job easier or harder. Yeah. You know, I when you're there, keeping up the keeping the walls up and like keeping it all in the straight and narrow kind of thing might. I don't know if it helps you get. Would it help it get you through it easier, or you know, or would talking about it help it get help you help get you through it easier? I, I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. I think um, without jumping ahead to you know the horses involvement in the story 
Um, you know, when you're dealing with uh, a nervous rider, and, and sometimes that's me, um, the best place to go to is actually what's in front of you um, and deal with what's going. So what do you feel in your hands? What are you feeling in your seat? What, what do we have to deal with what's in front of us? And, you know, that's a good way of combating fear, anxiety, all those sorts of things is to stay present. So 100% I understand and agree with what you're saying with, how, you know, what is the best way to stay on task? But interestingly, you, you mentioned the walls, and I think the walls is probably part of the problem. Do you know what I mean? The, the walls of, yeah, putting up walls is probably what then makes you emotionally cold and less sensitive to your environment, um, whereas we would be better off going through a motion of probably picking things up and putting other things down and then putting that down and picking something else up. I, that would be uh, switching really is what I'd refer to that as, as um, a probably more functional way of um, of working through that. And another thing that I've taken from, again, the horses is that pressure and release. And when when do we need to just let something go? Um, and when do we actually need to press on and maybe not deal with that or actually press on in, in uncovering that and dealing with that in that moment so that we can move on and um not staying rigid really that pressure release you know represents a lot of things but the rigidity can hold you to something you know yeah right um in the podcast i listened to you told a story about you know being on the base there and you you know just because you're on the base doesn't mean you're safe you told a story about like um like a rocket attack or something was it yeah, yeah. So I um I had a bit of a close call because I made a bad judgment call on whether I should just go to ground or run to a armored building. And um whilst I was running to the building, um I had fragments from the the bomb f- whiz past my head and it actually punched a hole in the building that I was running to and um a piece about the size of my fist just missed my head. Um and and I had dirt and things from the bomb sort of spray on me um but yeah there were there were a number of little occasions where we had like people um come on base with ieds um and there were attacks on the base so those those little things can be quite unsettling as far as like that perceived level of security and when you're on the base sometimes complacency can sort of slip in a little bit but remembering that you're in actually you are actually in a war zone and there are degrees of risk. Some areas are obviously going to offer more risk being outside the wire, so to speak. Um, but there's always still a level of that. And that maintaining that vigilance, I think, is a bit of a factor for guys um, that can create some problems when they come back. Yeah. And how long were you there? Uh, five, about five and a half months. And it was yeah. just the one, one trip over there? Yeah, just the one trip. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you're quite upfront about uh ptsd and and things like that from your experiences over there what was when did you start to to come to terms that that's what was going on like what was it like when you came back to uh, australia yeah so when how, I, how were you then yeah so when i came back um i i guess to to, to describe it with a word i felt foreign like I, I was home, but I didn't feel like that was my home anymore. I felt really foreign and I didn't feel comfortable and I found it very hard to relax. 
I, I was very drawn to things that were high adrenaline um, and I was always up. And um, it probably took me, look, it's, I think it's like most things in life, there's like degrees, you know, and, and when, you, when you reflect, you probably learn more about that period of your life as you continue to progress through life. And looking back at it now, I, I think I would say that I identified it quite quickly, but how comfortable I was and open I was to the degree of how much I was suffering, that varied. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was, it was like how much I was prepared to open up. And I would, I'd shut down quite quickly. You know, if you, if I started to feel uncomfortable, um, I wouldn't speak as openly and freely as I do now. I would just shut down and that would be it. So I worked it out pretty quickly, but it took me. So I, I attended therapy every, every week for about five years. How long after you came and how long after you came back did you start with the therapy? Um, well, it was very it was very all over the place because I'd start working with someone and then they'd say something or whatever, and then I'd be like, I'm out of here. Um, so I think before I really just went, nah, this is it, I'm gonna do this, um, probably two years. It took two years before I was like, okay, I'll I'll work through this. And what sort of uh, what sort of therapy did you do? You do a particular type of therapy, like yeah, so EMDR I, or yeah, CBT? I, or I did CBT initially. Um, yep. Yeah. Sorry, I made a mistake. I, it was two years after I separated from the military, so it was three and a half years after I got back from Afghanistan. Yeah, that I started seeing a psychologist, and we started with CB, CBT. Um, so yeah, it, um, that was how it started, and then. Uh, I went to, I moved around a little bit, went down to South Australia, uh, to New South Wales. Um, and then when I came to Sydney, um, I started working with a psychologist who said, listen, we're going to do exposure therapy and um, mm. in vivo sort of work. So um, I would, we started off with, I would, I had to write down all the things that were uh, spaces that I would feel triggered um, and places that I struggled with. And from, you know, least severe to most severe. And I would then have to go out to those environments and expose myself to those environments for at least 40 minutes. I had to work through it. And we worked through different tools and, you know, uh, stillness exercises, breathing exercises, all those sorts of things, um, strategies to help me deal with being in that present moment because I would just start getting all sorts of feelings and emotions. And um, once yeah. we worked through all of those, then we went into exposure therapy where I had to talk about all, I had to write down again a story that bothered me, write down to the worst, absolute worst experience I had that was really traumatic for me. And then I had to tell those stories and record them and then listen to them every day. Um, and that was that was hard work. I did all of that without medication um, and it was very hard. I, I would sometimes come home from my appointments and sleep. I'd sleep from, you know, I'd get home at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and sleep until 8, 8 a.m. the next day because I was just so emotionally and mentally exhausted from what I'd gone through. Um, yeah, it was, it was the hardest thing I've done in my life, 
by far the hardest thing I've done in my life. It being so emotionally and mentally drained and hurt that you're physically in pain is it's a it's an that's another world, man. Like it's <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So before the because some of that stuff I hadn't heard of the exposure therapy I had. What was the thing before the exposure therapy? Um, I hope I've got the name right. I remember it, it was called In Vivo. And you know? what exactly did you do? So it's it's a level of exposure, really, um, where so for inst- for example, um, crowded spaces would give me anxiety. So shopping centers, um, I would have to go to a shopping center, sit at a bench, and you would feel a panic attack come on. You'd feel triggered. You'd feel whatever, and I'd have to sit there and work through it. Convince but myself. But he gave you, you did yeah. you guys work on tools? Yes. To to use it. Okay. So yes. you learned the tools first. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So we got we worked, yeah, okay. worked some sessions. <laughs> yeah. We worked on some sessions. Yeah. Yeah. All right, if you guys I at home listen to, <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at is, is, um, you know, that's what you do with horses, and you know, yeah. I've done podcasts on the principles of training, and once that one of the principles of training is create a tool before you use a tool. So yes. before you put yourself in that situation, yes, the the therapist would have taught you some tools to yeah. use. Yeah, so I did. in that situation, just, I want to make that clear because people might think, oh, I'm scared of whatever. I'm just going to go and yeah. stick myself in it and yeah. not have any tools to help you through it. Yeah, yeah. so I, d- I did say it before. I probably didn't make it clear enough, but we did like breathing exercises and different strategies. Yep. I had I had different strategies. So um, those those were the tools that I was given. And also um, we would do things, again, much similar to horses, exposing them to something that freaks them out. We would work at, you know, that pressure of how close would you be to it. So if I, you know, we might start further away from the shopping centre and then gradually incrementally bring it in as you get comfortable with that. So very interestingly, at that same time that I started exposure therapy, I went and got a horse. Um, and then that's when I, as I said to you earlier, I, um, started watching your YouTube videos and watching, you know, there was one that you had starting an anxious cult or something like that. And it was you in a round pen with this big black horse and, and you were talking about, um, how you're going to help this horse with developing those tools and listening to you talk about that was like horseman language to what the psychologist said. And they all, it was so interconnected. It was so much the same thing. I used to go to these sessions and say to my psychologist, I listened to this guy, Warwick, and he just talked about this with this horse. And so she used to use horses as an example, as an analogy for how I'd work through these things. And, um, and then I would work on the tools and the strategies that she taught me and I would actually start imparting them on my horse because I got a horse that was in the unridden, bucking, naughty section at the dogger's sales. So she had her baggage, she had her things. And so um, I was teaching them, imparting them, learning them myself and observing them um, through working with horses. And, um, yeah, very, very key. I think that's a very key part to my healing was that I was able to practically apply them to something else and then sort of look at them retrospectively or indirectly and observe that and see how it was working. Um, so I was able to then take myself out of that mentally and emotionally from myself, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So tell us, because you didn't, you know, I've heard on your other podcast, you grew up with, with animals, dogs and chickens and things like that, but yeah. you didn't actually have horses. So what was the, what was the trigger for, you know, what was the, the end for you to go, you know what, I think, I think a horse would be a good idea. Yeah. So I worked, um, in coal seam gas mining and I was going out to properties and, um, I would go out to these properties and horses would um, sometimes come and find me. And um, I was at a particular property and these three yearlings came over to me and started following me around. I've actually got the photo on my phone. And um, the farmer came over to me and said, when he was, we were negotiating and talking about different things, he said, hey, um, these horses here, they're following you around. They're unhandled. He said, you know, are you, are you a horseman? Do you do stuff with horses? And I said, no, mate, I've got no experience with horses. Um, I love them. I think they're great, but I don't know anything about them. And um, he said, well, I think you should have a go because uh, they, they've taken a liking to you. So um, that was a, a bit of a – that was the start of it. And then I worked on a sheep station and uh, the neighbours had horses. And when I'd be out working on the fences, I'd see these herds of horses and they'd run around up on this mountaintop and they'd cruise around and – one of my one of the blokes I worked with, um, he um, would talk to me about them, and I found it very fascinating observing herd behaviour, and I started connecting dots there, or what I felt had to be something there in regards to observing these horses and a bit of our own behaviours, um, but also you know little things like um, the way that the lead horde, lead horse would interact and behave versus the young colt and the way that he tried to staunch people and the way that he would behave you could see the insecurity as opposed to the older horse who was had been there and done that and the way that he handled people and handled situations do you know what I mean so I started that started creating some aha moments and I was like that's fascinating you know um so then I uh was in Sydney project like go forward to my time in Sydney and I was looking for other therapies and um, started looking up therapies, found horsemanship, and then I found you. And then I started watching you on YouTube and I thought, I've got to have a go at this. So um, um, so I was looking up, yeah, I was looking up uh, different therapies and then um, found horsemanship and then found your, your YouTube channel, started watching that, and then... Um, Actually, whilst, whilst I was looking at this stuff on YouTube, I found um, a documentary on the doggers' sales, and um, that put me in tears. So for people, for people overseas, doggers' sales are horse sales. They call, them, they call the horses doggers in Australia because they're going to go for dog food. They're going to be sold for slaughter. So they call them dogger sales. Yeah. So, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, there was a, a documentary on that, and um, I, I couldn't watch it it broke my heart. So I thought I need to go and get one of these horses because I, at that stage, I didn't want to ride. I just wanted a pet, you know, something that I could work with. So, um, yeah, I, I went down to the, I went down to an adjustment center and there's an old fellow there, like a, a bit of an old hand. You could tell he was a cowboy, a bit of a cowboy. And I, I said, Hey mate, I want to go get a horse. Everybody thought I was mad. And I, I was partly mad at that time. I'd say, <laughs> um, and I was like, um, I want to go get a horse. And he said, yeah, cool. And he said, you know, make sure it's got clean legs, straight legs, make sure it's, you know, you don't want a horse like this. He had all these different things. And I went, all right, cool. Um, 
And I always tell people when they ask me, it's funny because people said to me, buy an old gelding. Like you want an old boy, been there, done that, something that's going to look after you. And I went down to the sales, but the horse that I found was like a three or four-year-old filly that was from the unridden section because she bucked. Um, and I picked that one. So um, I went a bit against the grain there, but that's okay. <laughs> but did you pick, you told me a bit of a story before we got on here that you didn't pick her. She kind of picked you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I, I really wanted to have a, a horse that was interested in being with me because I just felt like that was my best opportunity at working this out. So um, armed with a little bit of knowledge, just enough to be dangerous, I, um, I went down and started walking around and there was over 100, I think there was 170 horses there. Not all of them were destined to the doggers, but there was a sale yard. And um, walked around, I spent three hours there. And I walked around and I'd stand outside the yard and um, just see if the horse wanted to interact with me. And um, there was a, a pen that had three horses in it. And when I walked over there and I just stood by the gate, um, my horse Coda now, she, she came out from the other horses and she walked to the middle of the, the yard and just looked at me and I thought, okay, I, I'm going to go in because this horse is looking at me. So I walked in and, um, and uh, I just walked, went to the gate basically, just went inside the gate and she walked and then met me. I sort of met her halfway. And, um, yeah, she, she pushed me with a snout right in the middle of my chest. And I, I just like sort of took a step back and I thought, I can't take a step back. I know, I know that I can't take a step back here. I've got to do something. So I took a step forward and I pushed her in the chest, just, just gently with, you know, to nudge her back. And she took a step back and took this massive breath and just let it out, you know, and she lowered her head and was licking and chewing and blinking. And I thought, I'm pretty sure that's a good thing. I remember seeing that somewhere. So I, uh, I turned and I walked to go around behind her to see if she'd join up with me. And she joined up with me and I thought, yeah, I'm pretty confident that's join up. Um, I was able to touch her along her back and she trusted me to, to pick up a foot. And I thought, no, nah, this, is, this is the way to go. We're going to do this. And so, um, yeah, it was a very powerful, you know, uh, experience. And then I, I went, I wrote a number down in my phone and I went and sat in the um, – in the grandstand and I waited around this round pen and she was number 108. And um, then they've called out 108 and it was so funny because she didn't come out. And then I hear this big crack with a stock whip and then she comes bolting in and uh, she's looking around all startled and then she, th this is the part that I can't believe, but she actually saw me and she walked across the round pen and stopped and faced me. And um, then the bidding started. And um, she went right down to two hundred dollars, and uh, so I started bidding. And um, a bloke in the in the in the stands started bidding, and I knew he was buying horses for the doggers. So I was pretty I was pretty worked up. I was pretty emotional, <laughs> and um, I'm bidding on this horse. And um, yeah, I won. But the, the whole time she just stood there and stared at me. And um, a few people said to me afterwards, "Do you know that horse? Like, have you? Has, there's something you got a connection with this horse?" And I said. I don't know anything about horses. And they said, well, why did you pick that one? And I said, because she, she seemed to want to be with me in the yard. These people, you should have seen a look on their face. They, they didn't believe me. <laughs> they were like, what are you talking about, mate? Um, and so, yeah, then I got, I got a truck to take her back to the adjustment and the, the, the old fellow there, he looked at her and he went, yeah, you know, nice type, good job. And then um, 
that's where it started. I'd watch I'd watch your videos on different things, desensitization, all that sort of stuff, and I'd just go down. I literally would watch the video, have a go. Oh, I don't know how that went. Watch the video again, have another go, and we just worked it out. Um, and then, um, yeah, I went through a process of trying to find new trainers and stuff like that. And then as, as, as I said before, you know, I, I quite honestly, um, anyone that I felt like wasn't really aligning with what I, what I felt were the right principles. Um, I just went, look, sorry, it's not for me. Um, and I had, you know, to be honest, I had a tough time because there's a lot of opinions out there and there's a lot of, um, a lot of people that will take you by the hand when you don't know what you're talking about. So I had to really sort of establish some values essentially on what I wanted this to be. Um, and as far as I was concerned, if it, if it wasn't benefiting me or my horse, I was happy to put that horse in a paddock because I knew that she was going to go to the can. You know what I mean? So it, yep. it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. As long as she was happy in eating grass, uh, you know what I mean? And that's, that's really been um, something that now I learn is them being comfortable. You know, and that's my goal with everything is as soon as I can help that horse be comfortable with what we're, we're working for, then I think I'm on the right path. So, yeah. You know, I just want to back up a second because the this whole podcast is called The Journey on Podcast. And it's about a lot of times it's about people's journeys on how they got to where they are and things that happened along the way. And I had a guest here, I forget, probably six months ago named Jim Masterson. and Jim does a very subtle type of body work with horses. And he was a he was a groom for Hunter Jumper shows here in the US. And as a groom, he would watch people who worked on horses, like did body work and stuff. And he started noticing these things that would happen with the horses when they did certain things. And he developed his own whole system from that. But He's the only hunter jumper groom who figured it out. So what I want to know from Jim was like, how did you figure that out? Like what, what separates you from everybody else? Mm. And it, it was like pulling teeth. I couldn't figure it out for a while, but finally figure out that he lived in Africa as a, as a child. His dad was a, a contract pilot, lived in Africa as a child, had pet monkeys, pet baboons, used to, um, you know, observe their facial expressions and all that sort of stuff. And then- wow. Later on, he got heavily into uh, transcendental meditation for a couple of years, like very seriously into it. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, you were telling me a minute ago when you're on the sheep station and you're looking at that mob of horses over there and you would observe their behaviors. Yeah. Didn't you spend quite a bit of time looking through a drone yeah. at, at villages in Afghanistan yeah. and observing behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, noticing yeah. patterns and things like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I, and I, you know, that is my, I love that you picked up on that. That is my answer when people say to me, how have you gone from someone who never touched a horse to now running a horsemanship program for people, you know, and, um, and how, how are you doing that? And I said, well, like, honestly, I, I feel like um, the horses have become something that helped me to ex to understand and express myself. And when I was all through my life, um, I have always 
thought a bit differently. I, I am a little bit of an oddball <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy with that, you know, but I do, I do have my own way of expressing myself and thinking about things. And um, for me, the horse really just represents my world. It, it, you know, the way that I learned to interact with the horse has adapted and, and changed the way that I interact with people and the way that I observe things. And when we were um, having a bit of a chat before this podcast, um, we were talking about how people perceive things and that comprehension, right? And what I had was something that challenged my, my comprehension. And I think a key component to that, um, well, two key components to that, is that when I was a, a young fella, my, um, my dad was teaching me how to train German shepherds. So dad had German shepherds um, or Alsatians. Um, and a big factor to that was responsibility. And he could, he could do something with a dog that I couldn't do as a young fella. And I would, I'd be trying to get it and I couldn't get it. And then he would grab the dog and he would do it. And it, it would come back to me. And, and, and that's a confronting but liberating thing at the same time because when you understand that it comes back to you, well, then you have all the ability to do something with it. Do you know what I mean? And then when I started working with horses and I started working with Scott Brody, I would, I would blame the horse. I'd be doing something and I would say, he can't do this. And Scott would say, no, he can. You can't. And I'd be like, don't say that to me. <laughs> but then it, it fell back to my childhood of my father saying to me, mate, this dog can do this. It's about the relationship that you have with that, with that dog, you know. And in a way, my conflicts with my, within my own life and my own battles that I was going through at that time was actually about me and my interaction with the world. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I mean by when I say the horse represents the world because a beautiful example of that is aggression. And I used aggression for everything. Um, and that was just something that I learned as a kid and it was, it was reinforced by the, the army. But when, I, when my 650-kilo thoroughbred doesn't want to go on a horse float, your aggression's not going to help. You can't get him on the horse float with aggression. So um, things like that challenged my fallback. Do you know what I mean? And, and I love the old saying in horsemanship that says, um, frustration picks up where knowledge leaves off. Yep. And, and I frustration think begins where the knowledge ends. Yep. That, yeah, yeah, words to that effect. And yeah, I, um, I challenge myself with that. Every time I get frustrated, you know, anything, you know, I have a conversation with someone and they frustrate me and I think, what don't I understand about this? What more can I take away from this conversation that's going to help me to better understand? Do you know what I mean? And, and that need for education, um, is again a very confronting but liberating sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know the horses are great at that. I um a couple of years ago I went to a it was a three and a half day men's emotional resilience retreat. It was actually led by a, a guy. He's a, an ex faction. He was a an army officer. I mean, an air force officer here in the US. But he's done a lot of um he's done a lot of personal growth work himself. He's done a lot of grief work. He's done all sorts of different stuff. And, and the whole weekend was, uh, pretty amazing. But there was a guy at that thing with me and he 
was a firefighter. So here in America, uh, firemen, uh, they're the first responders. Mm. So, if, you know, like in Australia, the ambulance shows up first in America. So you've got to be, you've got to be like an ambulance officer, you know, you can not only just fight fires, but you do all that. So you, you're the first one to an accident. Um, so you see all the, the carnage. Mm. And so, he, you know, he was, this guy was out of everybody at the, at the thing, he was the most shut down. Like yeah. the guy leading the thing couldn't crack this guy. Yeah. Cause you know, he's, this guy had two teenage daughters and he arrives on the scene of a car accident where there's a teenage girl splattered all over the place. He cannot yeah. think that could be my daughter. He's just got to be doing his job. But anyway, yeah. uh, his wife has horses. And so at the end of this retreat thing, he said, uh, Hey, my wife tells me that horses are a reflection of you. <laughs> he said, um, so if your horse is an arsehole, does that mean you're an arsehole? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, it actually doesn't work that way. Yeah. The, the, the syllabus for that all weekend was there was a, there's a book about the four male archetypes. There's king, warrior, lover, magician, and they all kind of balance each other out sort of thing. I don't know if you've seen that book at all. Have you ever seen that book? No. Great no. book. Yeah. Um, but anyway. I said, it's a bit like that. I said, you know, whatever, it's, it's not there a direct reflection of you, but whatever you're lacking in, or if you're too mm. much of something, it will show up almost as the shadow side, like yeah. that, that book we were on. So there's the, the king, warrior, lover, magician. That's what the book's called. The king is the doer of deeds and he does things for the, well, he does things for the good of the kingdom, basically. He does acts of service for everybody else. But the shadow side of that is the prince. And yeah. the prince does things for external validation. Yeah. So every one of them has a shadow side. And I said, so it's almost like that with the horses. I said, if you're too timid, you will, there'll be a reflection of that from your horse, but it won't be your horse being timid. It's almost the opposite yeah. of that. But if you're too aggressive, your horse won't be necessarily too aggressive. They'll be probably the opposite of that. They'll yeah. be too scared. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's, they're not a direct reflection, but they are. They're a result. You know, you've got, you've got to be, you've got to be that, that well-rounded, you've got to have access to all the parts yeah. to be able to help because with a horse, because they, they have all, all the parts work with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about how, so you, you, you got this horse helping you with things. How did you get into helping other veterans uh, mm. with their PTSD with horsemanship? How did that come about? So um, Scott runs a veterans program and he was working with inmates um, down in New South Wales. And uh, I, I was following him around and uh, working, working some horses and stuff. And one afternoon he, uh, he pulled me aside. And I, I remember it was a very powerful conversation. And he said to me, well, standing by my horse, like he said to me, Zach, where do you want to go with this? Like, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I want to find a way to get better. And then I want to help other people do it. And, and he said, well, you have the aptitude. You have the aptitude to work with horses. He said, I truly, truly believe that you can make an amazing horseman because you have the right pieces and you have the right understanding and comprehension. He said, so if you want to do that, you give me five days a week or five sessions a week, I'll give you a horse and it'll be your horse. And his name was Budgie Boy. He was an ex-race horse. He said, it'll be your horse. You retrain him and we'll start there. And I went, yep, 
I'll do it. So I'd go down every day um, and work with um, Budgie Boy Tricky, his name was, and uh, he was a 10-year-old, 10-year-old um, gelding. Um, he'd raced right up until he was nine. Um, and he had already, what they didn't tell me was that Budgie Boy had gone through the program, done, um, had a spell and come back for his, because Scott trains him, does some things, spell, come back, train him, get him ready for sale. The Budgie Boy knew the ropes. And that's the story I was telling you about when I'd say, this horse can't do this. And he'd say, mate, he can do it. I had, it, I had him doing it, right? So anyway, so it was a very, there were some tough days. I spent a lot of time laying on my bed, staring at the ceiling, um, thinking, what am I doing? But um, then Scott, um, Budgie Boy actually went to the police. He, he got a trial as a police horse. Um, he unfortunately failed due to a vet check, but he's gone to a, a home doing trial riding and stuff, a really beautiful horse. And um, anyway, after that, Scott used to listen to me talk. I used to talk Scott's ear off. I still do. And um, he goes, mate, you say some really good stuff. You know, you say some really good things. And I, I want you to come down. I want you to talk one of my clinics. And I went, oh, yeah. He goes, look, people need to hear what you've got to say. I really believe that. And I was like, okay, okay. So I went down to this clinic and he got me to do a demonstration of join up. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I was, I was, my heart was pounding out of my chest. I was so anxious. I couldn't do it. And my horse, Ace, my, um, my thoroughbred, was looking at me like, whoa. Like he, he was on the other side of the round pen, right? And um, Scott started coaching me from the outside and was helping me. And, and he, then he picked up really quickly. He went, oh, no, hang on. This is, this is Zach. So he diverted. He's a great coach, great mentor. He diverted, covered it for me. We got, the, we got it done. And then I walked out and he said, how are you going, mate? I said, man, I, that put the fear of God in me. Like, I, I, you know, I was not, I, I feel like I wasn't ready. He said, well, I think you were ready and that's why I put you there because I, I, I know you've got the tools to get through that. He said, but we're only going to get better from that. And so he, he would talk to me and he would coach me on things and we'd talk on the phone and he'd say, I really like what you just said then. Next time I get you to speak, I want you to say that, throw that in there. And so he really helped me, you know, he really guided me. This man's changed my life. And he then gave me more and more opportunities. And, you know, it's a big thing for him because at one stage, I'd only been literally around horse for seven months and I was instructing assistance, an assistant instructor on one of his clinics. And I remember a person walked up to him and said, why, am I, why is he helping me with this? And he said, what do you mean? And she said, I've been around horses my entire life and I know that he's only been around horses for a couple of months. And he said, well, if he tells you anything that's wrong, then that's on me. But I can tell you right now, he's not going to tell you anything wrong because he does exactly as I have taught him and he understands this just as well as anybody. And for Scott to put his name, like you know what that's like as a clinician and someone running clinic, for him to put his name next to me and say, I backed this bloke, that was very empowering and, and I learned a lot. And he then continued to help me and back me and put me in front of people. And I just developed my own style of talking. And, and I really worked out what it is that makes horses work for me and what I get out of it. And, you know, I, he also says to me, don't, 
confuse your ambition with your ability. <laughs> so I'm very aware of my what I can and can't do. I do know what I'm not able to do. And I, I just, I share what it is that I know. Um, and I'm very open to what I don't know. And I, um, I, I will, if, you know, I still have times where I'll, I'll run sessions and if I've got something on my mind, you know, and, and, and it's blocking me from working with that horse, I share that. And I say, guys, I am not, I am not the person here that thinks he knows everything. I, I am facilitating something by the fact that I, I own this horse and I'm, I'm offering a safe space for you to work with this horse and be around this horse, but I'm learning too. Um, and, yeah, basically that, that's how it started really it was just Scott kept giving me these opportunities and, and then I started working with him. And then when I moved to Queensland, um, back, this is where I'm from originally near Ipswich. I um, I went back to an RSL because I started working with an RSL when I first got out, and they they were a really good bunch of blokes, Vietnam veterans who I resonated with really well, and they took me under their wing and looked after me. And um, so I wanted to get back to an RSL because I felt like I had something to impart and share, and I wanted to get it off the ground. And so the Ipswich RSL. Um, through talking to them and I volunteered down there as a welfare officer, they said, yeah, mate, let's, let's get this going. Let's do something. So I went down to a local school and I started working with students from defence families. So there's kids there that their parents are currently serving. Um, and they're really extraordinary stories that you hear of kids that are displaced because of posting cycles. You know, parents are getting moved around and they might be 15, 16, and, and they don't want to move again because they've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, they've got a job, yep. you know, they want to they want to be their own person now and they keep getting moved. So, you know, inter- you know, creating interactions for them with horses to better understand themselves and but also to understand what mum and dad are going through. And I talk a bit from that side of the military and try to help connect them because I still believe that the best support um, is family. And, and that was what helped me through my really tough times as well. So there's a bit of that. That really got me going. And then the RSL completely funds and supports this program. So I um, run a Saturday session um, and I just had an open day one day. It was amazing. Like 70 people turned up and I just started talking like I am now and just ran demonstrations and did join up, got people out of the crowd to do join up, did um, you know, target work, getting the horse to put its nose on a bucket and just different little things where the horse can act at liberty and, and, and be its own person and you need to be, or its own horse really, it, you need to be influential in a positive way otherwise it'll run away. And I find that a really powerful positive space and I'm able to do a little bit of what Scott used to do for me where I can step in there and say, if you just move a little bit over here or if you can think about where you are mentally right now and we can just push all that aside maybe just leave it at that gate over there and and just be present with that horse and I'm sure you've seen it many times the amount of times I've asked someone to close their eyes and just breathe just breathe for me just close your eyes and the horse just turns and walks up to them and stands with them yep the energy changes completely doesn't it that it's it's mind-blowing and it it's um, it's it's very hard to describe, but when you put people in front of horses and they see that sort of stuff, it's so powerful, you know. So, 
yeah, that that's uh, that's a bit of a long story on how I got to where I am, but that that's it. Yeah, you know, there's something you said in there when uh, uh, you're working with Scott. Oh no, after you working with Scott, sorry. When when you said you're working with people, and you said, you know, if it's not working for you, you will tell them. Hey, I don't know, you know, it's not yeah. working right now, whatever that is. And I think that, you know, that's leading by example because you're trying to get these people to kind of open up a little bit mm. and and let those walls down. And if you can go first and, and let that wall down and go, hey, I'm yeah. I'm not I don't know everything here. Normally I can do this, but I can't today. You just be vulnerable about, you know, let some of that stuff out. I think that's like the it's like creating a space to where they could actually be a bit more vulnerable too. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I I believe, and from my experiences so far, you know, even even the people that I idolise and look up to in the horsemanship world, I know that they have days where they go, that wasn't as good as I've done it before. Do you know what I mean? And And that's a bit like life. You know, you have days where things, unfortunately, just don't come together. And if we... If we continue to develop and hold this pretense that things will be perfect and I don't make mistakes, well, you're not really opening the conversation to mental health or anything developmental. Do you know what I mean? Right. Mm. So before we got on the podcast here, we had a great conversation. Hopefully we can get some of that back out. But you said that you were, were you said that you were called up to um I think it was give evidence or give a statement for some sort of a royal inquest to do with uh, PTSD and veterans? Yeah, so I was um, – the same thing happened with uh, much how you found me with the podcast from the ABC. A, uh, a commissioner uh, came across my story and uh, said, look, I want to get this guy in the inquest. And that's a – I'm very privileged to have that opportunity because it hasn't started yet. And so I'm being asked to come in – and speak at the start of this inquest. And normally those sort of things happen at the end after someone maybe their name gets mentioned or whatever and they go, well, we're going to talk to this guy. So I'm very humbled by that and it's a really great opportunity. But, um, yeah, so I've been asked to, to give my accounts on on my service as a, you know, as a veteran in Afghanistan. And, but then they really wanted to hear about this horsemanship program and how that's helped me integrate into civilian life. But um, something that I was talking to you about that I found really interesting is everybody in the, like I must say, everybody in the process has been amazing and everyone's got great intentions and I can see that they really want to make a change and, and, and help out. But we were having a conversation um, much like you and I are now and, and there was someone that was recording um, and they were generating a statement for me and I went over there was clarification so we went through the story then some clarifications and then we went back over we spent a couple of hours on this um and they'd go away and come back and go away and come back and then they created this final statement well not final but they created a statement and they said can you read this how does that read does that sound like what we've spoken about and i read it and i i was just shocked um at what i got back and a little bit like what we're talking about with horses right and that interaction what it stood out to me is the way that it landed with the person that I was telling it to because that's how it read. It didn't read verbatim how I'm speaking to you now. It read that someone interpreted what I had to say like this to the point where their, the language they used, for instance, they referred to a combat zone. I, that sounds like someone's Googled 
something or they've watched Band of Brothers and they've come up with Combat Zone. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just it was very dramatised. Now, I don't blame anyone for that, but I think what it's highlighted is a systemic issue and that systemic issue is the same thing that guys fo- uh, face when they separate from the military. I mean it's, it's within the military too. You might go down to see a doctor, a psychologist, and they say, okay, tell me what's going on. And you, you know, you dig up these things and you express and you talk about it. And then I have experienced it myself, but I've also, with guys that I've conducted welfare work with, they go, I don't know what these people are thinking. I didn't say that. Do you know what I mean? Why, why have they said this back to me? Why, you know? Now, when we're reflecting and we're trying to look into why guys are committing suicide, my feeling and, you know, and understanding that, you know, disconnect and isolation is a big factor. It's, it's something that stands out, right? And when you've got someone, and I, I'm happy to go back and work on this statement and fix it all up, but as I said to these, these um, lawyers and, and people, I said, you're trying to do an inquest into why guys are committing suicide and, and what's happening and what, where's the problem here? And we've just highlighted a systemic issue in itself. It's not necessarily one person's fault, but you've got personalities in these roles and, and people's comprehension on what they believe is right or what they think that we should do with these people is where we're getting miscommunication and misrepresentation. And then when you've got a vulnerable person who feels like they can't be heard and what they're saying is being misinterpreted and they're in a desperate place, how, how connected do you feel? How, how isolated will you now feel? Because you just spent all that time of going through that stuff. And, you know, I talk to a lot of guys. They say, I'm sick of changing psychologists or doctors or going to different people because I have to keep telling the same story and I have to keep being the, that unwell person so that I will get supported. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. that identity and wearing that and carrying it around, it's tiresome. And, and I really feel that um, that is a massive contributing factor and I find it very interesting that th- it's organically occurred through the inquest. Um, and, yeah, you know, I, I, it's interesting when you spoke before about that firefighter being, being shut down. I, um, I worked with a horse. A lady had a horse at a riding school and she said to me, can you work with this? It was a quarter horse filly, a uh, quarter horse mare, sorry. So can you work with this horse? It started bucking or it stops. It just stops. It just, you'll be riding along and just stops. I was like, okay. She said, it doesn't like men. Um, It doesn't like being bridled um, and it doesn't like being in an arena. I said, okay, no worries. So I um, started working with it and went, went through this process and yeah, it was shut down. It was shut down. And what I noticed was that I could ride it, and I'm not a fantastic rider, but I could ride it after three sessions of groundwork. I was able to hop on and we could ride. She took the horse back and put it back into the school. Someone jumped on it and it tried to buck this woman off. And I said, oh, she came back to me and said, that horse has gone backwards again. And I said, okay. I said, how long did the lesson go for? She said, oh, it went for about, about half an hour, 40 minutes, and then she started, she started having these issues again. So I jumped back on the horse, started riding, no problems, right? And I, I had a discussion with this lady and, and I said, what do, you, what do you think the problem is? I mean, you, it went fine for 40 minutes and then there's a problem. What do you think it is? And she said, 
She wasn't listening to the horse. And the horse went back to being shut down. It was either, it was either going to freeze or it was going to buck because it's trying to get away from that, that, the fact that, hey, you're doing something here and you're not listening to me. I'm going to go back. I'm, I'm going to shut down, you know. And I, I do believe there's a bit of that in service guys because we're not always allowed, as we were talking about my experiences overseas, we're not always allowed to express how we feel. And sometimes it hurts so much you just push it back, you know, you push it back and whatever. But eventually you will get to a point where you'll become so aroused or so worked up that your mind will shut down. And that's just another connection that I made through working with horses where I was like, these guys suffer the same things, you know, they, they, and it's human intervention. It's, it's, it's our interactions with them. It's our interactions with ourselves where we can lose sensitivity and lose that ability to communicate effectively. And then that individual will shut down. And um, yeah, I saw a prime example of it with, with working with this horse. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think with the horses, they shut, you were just talking about being heard, you know, being listened to. And I think they tend to shut down because, you know, they become overwhelmed, you know, shutdowns on the other side of anxiety. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't go from relaxed to shut down. You go from relaxed to concerned. And when whatever you are trying to do to alleviate the concern doesn't work, then you kind of go into shutdown. Um, and it sounds like it was the same thing with like your statement for this, this suicide thing. You weren't, you weren't being heard. There was a, there was a, a lens that they, they viewed what you were saying through that, that distorted what you're saying. And I had a, I had a guy named Mark Rashid on, I don't know if you ever heard of Mark Rashid, yeah. but him on the podcast here, uh, earlier this year and he's he's uh does quite a bit of martial arts and he does a, a a martial art called aikido and he says they have a saying called a mind like still water and he says first thing in the morning if you go out to like a little pond or something around there and stand on one side of it when there's no breeze and you look at that pond you will get a perfect reflection of what's on the other side of the pond a perfect reflection but if you put your finger in the water and just swish the water a little bit or get a pebble or whatever and throw it in there you will, your interaction will cr will change what that reflection looks like. So it's no longer a true reflection of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And he said to be to work with horses, you need to have a mind like still water. So you have to be able to remove that that story you have about what they're doing. You have to remove that judgment, and you have to be able to see see them for who they are and what they're actually doing without having a story attached to it. And, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the, or well, the year that I did a lot of therapy, uh, one of the things I really learned was about observing judgmental thoughts, being aware of judgmental thoughts and that sort of thing. And when I practiced that for a while, the next year when I started going and doing clinics again, I found that the horses were completely different around me than they had been before. And I mean, this is, this is 2018. So, you know, I'm, 51 at the time sort of thing, you know, I've been around horses all my life and mm -hmm. something I've been doing away from horses has made those horses different. And what I've done was I, I removed that, that lens to where I wasn't viewing them through a certain lens or I wasn't projecting any story onto them. I was, I could just see them for who they were and they were completely different. It was kind of mind boggling for me 
to where, you know, I've been around horses all my life and I've always thought I had to do something to make the horse better. But really I had to be something, you know, it's, it, I had to be a different way. And, and it was getting rid of that. It was getting rid of that lens. And it sounds like you were talking about, you know, these veterans go to a, these psychiatrists and, and, you know, therapists and they tell their story, but they say, well, they're not, they're not hearing what I'm saying because they're, they have a, they have a story behind the story. They have a lens that they're viewing it through instead of being able to listen. And that, yeah, that being able to just be present and listen to a human or a horse, allow them to, to give you their, you know, their, 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 their honest feedback and not judge it and not interpret it something other than it is that's that's a skill i think and that's i think that's a big skill with horses and i i was going to say you know you you said you know you only started with working with horses in 2016 and you know then you know uh uh, steve was that the guy's name scott scott sorry you know scott's got you helping at these clinics and stuff and this lady says well i've been around horses all my life a lot of times you're in you're in an annual position because you don't have all that old BS, you know, old wives' tales about horses. You you don't know that stuff. You know, this yeah. lady that that was t- talking about you, you know, she's got, you know, she's got forty years of baggage about the horses. You can't let the horse win, and yada yada. And she's got all that. You don't have that. So that's, you know, I think sometimes people that come into horses, not necessarily later in life, but that. that that start out learning, you know, the kind of the way we're looking at horses these days, um, start out learning that first rather than trying to relearn stuff. Mm. Uh, I, I think sometimes they're, they're actually quite a bit better than people have been doing it all their life. Yeah. I, you know, something else um, that I took away from working with Scott too is he used to say to me all the time, I'm not, I'm not doing anything new here. People have been working with horses for hundreds of years. I, like, I'm just, I'm just doing what works for me. Do you know what I mean? So I've, I've found something in a book or, you know, he, he likes Spanish, like classical training. So mm-hmm. he, yep. he worked with a guy called uh, Miguel Tavora and he said, you know, Miguel did some, has, you know, followed the Spanish way of educating horses. And he said, that makes sense to me and it helps me understand what I need to do. But I'm not doing anything. That's not something I just came up with. And so I found that very humbling that he would say that. But also we're following something that is, you could argue, is proven, I suppose. But it's, uh, there's like a lineage there. There's a history. There's, do you know what I mean? And so there's a bit of, I'm not saying that you need to stick to one thing. But in a way, it did suit my mind at the time that I like to follow a system and I just wanted to get those key components. And then my personality is what I feel makes it unique. Do you know what I mean? And, um, and as you said before about the horses and understanding, you know, Scott talks about the difference between a rider and a trainer. And a, a rider rides their horse, but a trainer can work with any horse. And, yeah, knowing how to change, as you said before, about the horse will become something off of the way that you are learning how to change and adapt how you interact um, is something that I find like amazingly therapeutic. And I think 
because of the way, as you were saying before, because of the way that I've come into horses, I have a completely different appreciation. And I look at it, I look at it so differently. I'm I'm not coming from a as a as a kid that had a horse and rode around on a property or competed at a low level or and developed all these beliefs and opinions and feelings about things and motivated by different different things. You know, my motivation is purely about how how a horse can help me and how then how I can help a horse, really, and how I can interact with it. So I, I think, yeah, I do have a very unique um way of coming at it but uh if that makes sense you know what i mean oh most certainly but you, you know you've got this you know i think you know i think scott said to you something about yeah you you, you have the aptitude for this you have this the and i picked it up listening to the, the abc podcast you have this energy about you that's that is a very um oh it's it's a very chill vibe and it's very it's very open. There's no, there's no walls up there. And, and, you know, I, I didn't do it with you because I didn't want to put you on the spot or anything, but normally for my podcast guests, I give them 20 questions that I stole from Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book. And I haven't choose four or five or six or seven and for me to, to discuss with them on the podcast. And one of the questions is, um, what qualities do you admire in other people? And my, and, and so what I did for one of the podcasts is I just went through and answered all 20 questions for me, you know? Yeah. And when it, when that question came up, I said, well, that, you know, it's changed as I've grown, but it used to be because I've been kind of shut down, you know, most of my life and didn't, didn't really have access to like explosive energy or, you know, I've kind of been just blur all my life. Mm. I, and not being very brave, I've always admired people who were, who were, were brave sort of thing, you know what I mean? And then like going to that men's emotional resilience retreat, like one of the guys there was a former UN hostage negotiator, you know? Yeah. Um, and it turned out at that thing that I found out that every single person there had the same underlying issue, whether you were scared or you were a tough guy, it was all the same thing. And, you know, over the years, so I've, I've kind of come to realize that people who have that I don't know, bravery thing that I used to, I used to admire, I realized that they're doing it for the same reason I'm scared. Yep. You know, like I listened to it, you know, like an interview with um, Mike Tyson the other day and he was saying, I was the most fearsome person in the world because I was the most scared person in the world. I was mm -hmm. a scared little boy in there. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I answered those questions on the podcast, I said, so what I used to admire in other people was, was kind of, you know, physical toughness and bravery and stuff but these days what i admire it's changed and what i these days what i admire in other people is uh is openness like emotional openness like not having those walls and and you you don't have those walls i can just get that get that vibe off you and and that's you, yeah. and i think you know I, I, it, it appeals to me and i'm sure it appeals to the horses too yeah thank you oh look i um I find it like I was a very, a very scared person um, when an easily intimidated person when I was a young fella through through high school, and I feel that a part of um, my connection to the military was that I thought I'd be tough if I wore the uniform, um, mm. and and I I think I said it in the podcast I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, I idolized my father and 
the other men in my family that served and I see them as, you know, you see, well, I do, see see them as as heroes, my grandfathers and all this, because they, they were tough men. And so I thought, I'll put the uniform on and I'll be tough. You know what I mean? And then I went overseas and I come back and I'm crying because of, and I'm sad, I'm hurt and all the rest of it. So I dealt with that with anger. So I became an angry person because I don't want to deal with the sadness and sadness is a weakness. Um, that's what I thought, right? So, but now I, I've realized that that's, it's all wrong. That's all wrong. Do you know what I mean? I got myself in all sorts of trouble. I was, um, I was charged with drug possession because I was taking st- anabolic steroids. And that was because I wanted to be someone. I wanted to be this big, tough guy because I wanted you to look at me and think, man, that guy's massive. He must be tough. Do you know what I mean? I, I think back to that now and I'm like, mate, that's so silly. Like who thinks like that? But that's, that's where I was at, you know. And um, I think the journey with, with the horses has taught me a, more emotional intelligence and also taught me to be comfortable with um, sadness, just, just, you know, just being comfortable with that. And um, it's still, to be brutally honest, it's still something that I work on. I have this thing when I work with um, my mare, Coda, and I think it's because of the connection of when I found her. But she makes me incredibly emotional, like not all the time. Um, but she knows, she knows something that no one else knows. Do you know what I mean? That's the feeling. That's how to describe it. Yeah. And yep. so she can see I, the real you. Yes, she can see me. Yeah. What very very clearly. And um, and same thing happens with Ace. Um, and I have learned to cry. And I'm very bad at it. I, I, I was quite an emotional kid, quite emotional until I joined the military. And that's when I started becoming quite hard and cold about things. But that was what was tying up my problems. That, that was what would pin me down or pull me down to that problem, you know. And once I started to learn sensitivity again and, and recalibrate my emotions, um, then I started realizing that all this stuff started coming off my, my shoulders. But I still do have something um that underlines and a bit of sadness there you know and, and, and it, it's um it's amazing how the horses will pick up on it and i just go Whoa! like i get this i feel choked up do you know what i mean and so i i'm still working through that it's something that i i'm comfortable to be still working through but um i guess my openness and my willingness to express myself is come from a place that i realize that we all go through it because we're all we're all human and, um, you know, I, I, when you were talking about that, I, I started thinking about the Cherokee Indians or the, the Indian, the Native Americans, right, and how in the, uh, in the war they were used um, as warriors because the, they were seen as fearless. But it wasn't that they were fearless. It's just that culturally it wasn't allowed. So they were scared, but they just weren't allowed to show it. Do you know what I mean? And so that to me, I think of that and I'm like, everybody feels these things. And I think particularly as men, particularly as men, um, you know, I think it's gone now, but, you know, there, it wasn't that long ago that we would say, don't cry, don't be a girl. Do you know what I mean? Don't, you know, you, you, you're a, um, boys don't cry, don't show emotion, don't, you know. Um, and so that's obviously still around. It's still in our cultures. It's still in our in our societies, and um, 
I'm happy to be the person that talks about it. More than happy, yeah. Yeah, I've been talking about that stuff for quite a while. Have you ever heard of a book called The Masks of Masculinity? No. So it's a guy by a guy named Lewis Howes, and he was a, a American guy. He, I think he was a very successful college athlete, might have played in the NFL for a short amount of time. Um, and then he wrote a book called the, I forget what it was, but it was, it was about his sporting prowess and how to do it and yada, yada, yada. And then he watched a, it was a show on Netflix, actually. It was a documentary on Netflix called The Masks We Wear. And it was about, um, well, his, I'll tell you about his book, but his book is about, it's called The Masks of Masculinity. And he said, because we're not supposed to show fear and show and cry and all of that sort of stuff, as children, we men develop these masks to cover up our emotions. And he lists there's seven of them and nine of them or one or the other. One of them is the joker mask. And so when the conversation gets a bit serious, you crack a joke, whatever. Yeah. And he said that there's a place in LA called the Comedy Store or the Comedy Club, Comedy Store I think it's called, where a lot of big time uh, comedians get their start. And if you go there and want to be a comedian, the guy that owns the place says, well, first you've got to go and see a psychiatrist because you are obviously severely depressed. If you are a professional comedian, you have spent so much of your life masking emotion by cracking jokes that you are now so good you're going to be a professional comedian. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the the aggressive mask, the alpha male mask, the um, achievement mask. And he says a lot of CEOs of big time companies are high achievers but they're high achievers because there's a mask you got up. So now you are successful and you're miserable. Yeah. And he says, you, you don't have to not be successful, but you've got to figure out what your mask was. Yeah. Um, from, uh, one of them is called the know-it-all mask, you know, where you act like you know everything because you don't, you, you're not, you don't be vulnerable and say, I, I don't know the answer to that, or I don't know how to yep. do that yep. or whatever. And yeah, that book was a, a really, Kind of a watershed for me when I read that one. I was like, oh yeah, because I could see a lot of I could see a lot of my masks. I didn't even know I had those masks. But I'm like, oh yeah, the know-it-all mask, I can see that one. Um the the Joker mask, yeah, I can see that one. Not being shut down, I never really had the aggressive one or any of that stuff. But but yeah, it's a it's a fascinating book, but it is about that right there. And and um I before we got on the podcast, I mentioned Brene Brown and you said you hadn't really didn't know that much about her. In one of her books, she talks about this uh, NFL linebacker. So they're one of the big dudes in the NFL, mm. you know. And he was telling a story where he, when he was 10 years old, went to football practice, the coach said, see that guy, I want you to run over him. And he kind of had a bit of a tear come out his eye and the coach said, don't be a puss, run over that guy. Mm. And so he said, I did. I ran over that guy and I ran over everybody who stood in front of me for the next 20 years. I ran over wives. I ran over business partners. I ran, I just ran over everything yeah. because, but it's all, you know, like Mike Tyson, you know, yeah. I was the most fearsome man in the world because I was a, a scared little, a scared little boy. And, and I think like, you know, in Australia these days, they, there's a lot of, um, a lot of talk about men's mental health and suicide, yeah. you know, with yeah. a lot of farmers committing suicide, that sort of thing, because we have, you know, we had a 10 year drought and everything's getting flooded. Uh, you know, I've been in the state since 1990 and what I would notice over the years, especially we went back for four years, but 
we've been back here since 2010, but what I would notice going back to Australia to a clinic or something rather, you go to the pub for, for dinner and yeah. you go into the, into the loo and on the wall is a something about men's mental health, which, which didn't used to be there. So it's a, it's a topic of conversation uh, these days, but I really think the, the key for, for young boys and stuff is allowing them to show fear and that sort of stuff and then coaching them on how to work through it. Like in my era, if you showed it, you would judge very poorly for it. But there was no, if you, you could either do it or you couldn't, but there was no like, okay, let's, let's kind of like you with the, the, with the, the shopping centers, like let's coach you how to expand your, your comfort zone and expand your courage and, you know, that sort of thing. There's, there, there is, there's not a lot of coaching on how to be brave. You're either brave or you're a girl. You know what I mean, and I, and I yeah. think that's the key. Is, is it's 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 okay for those kids to to you know express their emotions and and show they're scared and whatever. But they, I think they need mentorship from everybody on how to learn how to be brave. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I um, it can be it can be being brave. It can be showing emotion. It can be oh yeah, whatever anything, it is. right? Yeah, yeah. It, and and um, I an interesting thing I found when I started working with horses, and something that I see a fair bit um, with veterans, right? Again, is is um, you'd get a horse that acts up, say it doesn't like going on the float, doesn't like going to the beach, doesn't doesn't handle going to a show. So people would either make the horse really tired, lunge it until it's tired or they'd medicate it right and i i used to think but when are you going to ever challenge that horse on how to get over that right and the same things happen for veterans medication is always the first thing that happens they go right you're not feeling well antidepressants go and see a psychologist what happens more often than not is they stop seeing the psychologist because it hurts but they keep taking the antidepressants. And then guys get stuck in this cycle of taking antidepressants. Then they stop working because their bodies develop, um, you know, they adjust to that or they stop having that same effect. And then they go on another trial. And then they go on to a different one and they have med changes. Every six months they have these med changes. But no one ever goes in there, as you said, and coaches them on this is what we need to work on. Do you know what I mean? This is, this is, and what I feel horses offer away from your traditional psychological treatment and therapies and things is that we can discuss what's occurring in the horse and what we're seeing, observing from the horse, and then talk to the individual about how they might be able to better influence that. And if you have someone who needs to be more brave, if you need someone who, like, so they need to be more assertive, right? Assertiveness is something I talk to the kids about a lot because I see it a lot with the young young boys. They aren't assertive. They, they're not sure how to project what they want to say. Um, and, I, I, it's, yeah, it's interesting because girls are more likely to vocalise than the boys at that stage, and we're talking about 13 to 16, right? So, you know, we might need someone that, that can be more assertive. We might have a kid who's very anxious. And so this kid, this horse, I've had horses running around, just they don't want to stop trotting. They just 
trot and trot and trot and trot and trot because they're like, okay, like I can feel this. You know what I mean? So by saying, okay, are you observing? Can you can you see this for me? Like, can you see that? I want you to stop thinking about what's in here in your mind, and I want you to talk to me, observe, and describe what you're seeing here. And then they start talking to me about it, and I said, okay, so what can we do? Because it's it's you and the horse in this container. You're in this environment, and and I've spoken. I talk about leadership and and being the leader in that space, and and self regulation in a way that that horse will then feel your vibrations and your energy, and it will come to you. Because at the moment, those vibrations are pushing it away. So how can we how can we work on that? And through, you know, an indirect, as I said before, an indirect way of focusing on something else. I'm actually getting that person to be present because they're not. They're now not thinking about, you know, I need to be brave. I need to be assertive. I need to be, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, yeah, I, I do. I am attracted to the horse. I would like to better this, this relationship. So I'll do what you say. And wow, look, it worked. Do you know what I mean? But what happens then is that I take that person out and I put another person in to work with the same horse. Um, and I'm very mindful of how long you'll leave a horse with doing the same things or whatever. But um, yep. What I like about that is the only denominator in that situation, well, the biggest denominator, let's say, is the person. So they've just observed someone work through something and they've seen something achieve, be achieved with that horse. And then we put another person in and you'll get a different result. And then I talk like I did before about how that, that horse can be representing your partner. That horse can be representing a relationship you have with a friend. It can be your job. It can be your children. It can be, do you know what I mean? It can be anything. And, um, yep. yeah, I find that it, it starts to develop and establish a, a bit of a confidence and a different way of thinking about things um, by actually not dealing with that person individually and maybe isolating them out. Um, it's about just thinking about something else and bring, bringing it along. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, um, I did a year of it type of therapy called dialectic behavior therapy and one of the we used to have these mindfulness homeworks every week but one of the one of the homeworks had a list of these mindfulness exercises and one of them was if you have an animal closely observe that animal like if your cat's laying in the windowsill and the sun's shining in just sit there and look at every little individual hair that's lit up by the sunlight and when you observe something like that you're you're out of your head you know and I loved what you had them doing, like say the, the horse, you know, the person's anxious and the horse is running around. You said, tell me what you see. And I'm sure what you were trying to do was get them out of the head. But also it's not tell me what, how the horse feels. Like don't judge what's going on. Tell me what you see. Mm. You know, this horse, is, this horse is trotting around or whatever. You know, it's not the horse is an idiot. You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. you, 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 you're getting rid of that judgment, but what, yeah. what do you see? It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like that CBT thing, whereas if you, um, oh, I had a, I had a recent uh, experience at this. So I had to present at a, a, a summit in Lexington, Kentucky a couple of weeks ago, and it's called the Breast Horse Practices Summit. And I was the speaker after dinner on the Saturday night. Oh, and it was yeah. basically going to be about my journey with mental health and the horses. And so it was, it was relatively uh, raw and vulnerable. And I also had to do a 
you know, on the big screen behind me, I had to do a PowerPoint presentation. So I can talk all day, but I had this damn PowerPoint presentation. And I had to make sure it worked and all that stuff. And and I'm usually kind of off the cuff sort of thing. I don't follow a script. And so I'd been stressing about this thing for quite a long time. And I also, um, with it being, you know, being quite vulnerable to a room full of 200 people that you don't really know, I kind of got thinking, oh God, what if my next big, you know, breakdown, breakthrough happens then? So I'm I'm kind of concerned about what if, because I've been doing a lot of different things to kind of get my emotions working and, and, you know, we're getting to the pointy end of the stick now to where at some point in time I'm going to lose my shit completely, which is good. Mm, mm. Uh, but I was kind of, I stressed about it for, you know, a couple of weeks leading up to what if it happens then? Anyway, about, I don't know, half an hour before I'm supposed to go on, I have this, I have a panic attack. Wow. And I don't have panic attacks, but my mm. wife has had panic attacks for a long time and she's learned how to get over them. And so, yeah. um, but I, well, I wasn't having a panic attack because like my wife, when she has a panic attack, she feels the the things that she feels, she feels like she's going to die. Yeah. I, I'm pretty rational about that. Like I know I'm not going to die, but my whole body is just thumping yeah. and, you know, everything's buzzing and my heart is about jumping out of its chest. And, and so I text her and I go, Hey, having a panic attack, what tool should I use? And so she, one of them was one she gave me was count five things you can see, four yeah. things you can hear, you know, that sort of, so I did some of that sort of, sort of stuff. Um, what else did I do? I did an alternate nostril breathing thing that I have been told about. I went outside and grounded. I put my hands on the wet grass. Yep. I did a number of different things. Um, and I actually, I, I got through the whole thing and it, and it worked quite well, but, um, Good job. yeah, what I was, what I was saying there was this, this, yeah. you know, what's something you can see, like identify something you can see, gets you out of your head. And that's kind of what you're doing with those kids in the, in the round. Yeah. Room. Yeah, another one I like to do is um, just putting their hand on the horse. And, you know, horses, they twitch because they got all that sensitivity. And I talk about sensitivity yeah. of their, of us with our fingertips and the horse all over their skin. And connecting with the horse in a way that you're physically touching and feeling, but also being open to what the horse says back to you. So does the horse move away? Does it go, no, I don't want you to touch me there? Um, does it pin its ears? Does it become more relaxed? I have one horse who has, he always nips at people, like nips all the time. He, he's, you know, he's only five. Um, and, but I have a girl who, uh, Michaela is her name. She's 13. And when she goes up to Vinny, he falls asleep. And they have this connection that makes, brings tears to my eyes. Like I, it's beautiful. You know what I mean? Like when I see it, it's amazing. And, I don't have that connection with him, but but she's someone that is quite a quiet and reserved girl, and um, she's brilliant with horses and never been around one before. Um, she can make Vinny, or she can work with Vinny to do anything. But um, that was something I did with her, and it just it just worked. It, as soon as she went up and touched him, it just it changed, you know. And so that yeah, the, it's amazing what you can do and the tools that you can develop to help yourself. That you know we. Yeah, we can achieve a lot, and I think it's just a, a bit of um, of reconnection. And I really like, you know, one that you spoke about before with the, the the touching the grass. 
Um, I like gardening and um, I used to go out the back and put my hands in soil just and take my shoes off and walk and shuffle my feet on grass, you know, all those sorts of things. And so, you know, there's a, I think that is just another sort of connection to that, to the horses and how they can be so powerful in the way that they help you to ground. It's, um, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think what you're doing is, is awesome. So is that what you're doing full time? No, I study. Um, so I'm studying exercise physiology. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So you, were, you said earlier you were a personal trainer for a while, weren't you? Oh, I was years ago. Yeah. Oh, so, okay, yeah. I, so I'm actually, um, yeah, I'm actually volunteering, but I'm supported um, by the Department of Veteran Affairs. So they, they support me to go to university. So um, very grateful for that opportunity. And, you know, it's something that I struggled with when I was first put onto that program, um, which, you know, I didn't feel like I should be getting, like, that support because I thought, well, I volunteered to join the Army. I volunteered to go overseas and there's people doing it harder than me. So, um you know, maybe that's something I still need to work through with accepting things. Um, so what motivated me then is that's why I got in line with the RSLs because I thought, okay, if I'm going to be supported to do this, I'm going to use that to allow me to help other people. And then that's how it just grew into the horsemanship program. And so um, that's that's what I do. I study and, and in my spare time I, I train train and work with my own horses and, and then um, run the program at schools and um, on the weekend with veterans. So yeah. the program with the, with the kids and with the veterans, is it a non-profit? Yeah. It is. And so how yeah. do people, if someone wants to donate or anything to that, how do people find that? So if they go to the Ipswich RSL website, um, there is a donations tab um, and they can donate through the RSL. And so that, that money um, will be held by the RSL and then that helps me with um, feeds. Um, if anything happens to the horses, the RSL covers vet bills um, and things like that. So, yeah, it just, you know, previously before I got in line with the RSL, I actually covered the cost of all of this myself. So I would travel to clinics and, you know, um, work with people and run little days and things and I'd just do it off my own back. So. Um, having the RSL's support has been amazing. Wow, you are a saint, you know that? <laughs> really? Uh, I just, you know, um, as I said to you before, I, I really, I really, I was an adrenaline junkie kind of person and I did a lot of silly things and I, I did a lot of things that I'm very ashamed of, um, but it was all searching for a high, do you know what I mean? And um I get a rush when I'm around horses and when I talk around, about horses. That is the most powerful thing I've ever felt in my life. And so really, you know, someone once said to me, and it really challenged me at the time, they said to me, you know, you do this because it's good for you too. And I was like, you're making it sound like I'm selfish. You know what I mean? And then I, I sort of thought about it for a while. And I was like, no, nah, man, chill out. Like, it's cool. It, it's true. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's actually true. You, I do get a lot out of this. and so. I, you know, as a, when I was a section commander in the army, I loved mentoring. I loved coaching and, and seeing change, meaningful change in people. And I love doing it for myself as well. And so I, 
I like to work with the thoroughbreds because a lot of them don't find a life after racing. And so I like to repurpose that horse. And I like to connect them to a person who probably doesn't understand or realize their purpose yet either because their their purpose was connected and tied to the service. But now it's about helping them find something else. Do you know what I mean? And um, yeah, so I, I get I get so much out of it. Um, I have a folder in my laptop that's called Crazy Ideas at 3 a.m. Um, because that's what that's what happens. And I I write, I just write and write and write. I'm like Scott describes me as a maniac. My poor, my poor partner, she has to deal with my caffeine-induced brain explosions. And like I just I just love it, man. I just love it. Well, you certainly are passionate and uh, yeah, I think you're doing an amazing thing. Uh, so I'd like to thank you for your service firstly, because that's amazing. Thank you for what you're doing uh, for the veterans and thanks for joining us on the Journey on Podcast. This has been a, a, a fun chat. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Really, hey, really no grateful. worries at all. And um, you guys listening at home, once again, if you if anybody wants to donate, it's the Ipswich RSL's uh, website. That's correct? You can find on there. Awesome. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the Journey on Podcast. We will catch you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Journey on Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.